Hi everyone and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. Today's podcast episode is going to be on a little bit of a mishmash of topics. I wanted to go into talking about the morality of euthanasia as well as the entire idea of consent in relation to horses. Um, The reason being for this is that on TikTok there has been a story that's been unfolding with a rescue where they are looking to try to save um, this young pony foal who has like a very bad leg deformity. Um, And in the pursuit of doing so, in my opinion, it's a really great example of prolonging suffering because of the desire to keep an animal alive. Um, rather than doing what is best for them. And I find that this is something that people do a lot with all different types of animals because it's in our nature to try to avoid death. And we view it as doing animals a service when we do that for them. So I wanted to talk about that. And then I also wanted to talk about consent in horses in relation to different types of training practices and different types of trainers um, and how it kind of plays a role in training with how horses react and also how certain genders or breeds or types of horses are perceived when they don't easily deal with the lack of consent in training and allow people to push them around without any issue. But first, let me shamelessly self-promote a little bit. Um, I've released some more base layer colors in store. If anyone wants to go check those out, um, I have a bunch of different summer base layers released and then also still our summer riding shirts are available, but those are dwindling in quantities. So if you're interested in one of those, I would definitely get in soon. Um, a bunch of the bridles are restocked. Our Western side pole bitless bridle just shipped in. So that will be getting added to the store and available for in-stock orders soon. Um, and then also all of my other bitted and bitless bridles are there. There's lots of apparel to choose from and we have some good sales still going on in the remaining sample apparel orders. Um, and yeah, I'd really appreciate anyone checking that out and supporting the business that way. We really need to move product. I'm moving and I have some big things in the works. So the more product we can get moved, the more we can spread the word, the better it'll be for everyone because there's going to be some super cool stuff coming up soon as I am able to, but things are really hectic right now with moving and working and doing all the horse things that I have on the go. Um, in addition to having to move around as many horses and my whole household and yeah, you know how it is. So you can check that out on the amoreequestrian.ca website, A-M-O-R-E equestrian.ca and go to the milestone page. That's where all of my stuff is. We've also restocked the rolled leather neck ropes, which are pretty popular. So those are also still available now. Um, and you can check those out and shop on the website. Uh, please share the links, spread the word, help us advertise the small business. It'll help us with expanding and growing and offering all the different types of products that people have been requesting. Um, but we first need to establish the business first and sell the products that we do have. So highly recommend checking that out. Really appreciate the support of people who do and anyone sharing the stuff, like the products and how they feel about them and like reviewing them when you get them super helpful really appreciate it i also have my patreon channel for those of you who want behind the scenes training help um or access to tutorials behind the scenes stuff with uh, my product development and otherwise and also like when new horses come in and stuff that sort of thing you can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month but there's different tiers depending on what you're looking for um you can do that at patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash s-d-equus s-d-e-q-u-u-s and you can subscribe as for as little as a dollar a month the money from patreon just helps with the general expenses associated with maintaining the 
with the podcast and the YouTube channel and just like everyday little purchases that go into that for like, like example, the microphone that I got for the podcast um, and just kind of helping with the general day to day stuff of being in the line of work that I am. So that's a really great way to help support. I also have a paypal.me where you can just do non-monthly donations so there's no subscription for anyone who would like to do like a one-time payment and then I can also give you access to some of the tutorials that way if you don't want to do a subscription. Um, and I also do online consults as well that you can book if you want like online training help and to do that sort of thing you can book with me. Um, that's all on my website, milestoneequestrian.ca. Um, and then the PayPal is paypal.me slash milestoneequestrian. Okay, I'm done plugging now and we'll get back into it. Sorry, guys. So regarding the morality thing, this is not a specific issue to horses. I see this happen with all sorts of different types of pets. And honestly, what I will say is that usually it is well-intentioned. Like the people don't go into keeping their animals alive too long with malicious intent. They don't want to cause suffering, but with their actions, they end up doing that. But it's not an intentional thing by any means. And I really want to clarify that because I'm not going after this particular rescue sanctuary to be mean. But this rescue sanctuary, from what I've seen, they're not horse people. They don't know a lot about horses. And in the pursuit of trying to save the horse that they've chosen to rescue, I personally think they're prolonging suffering in a really terrible way. Um, and they're not the first to do it. They're just the one that I'm seeing do it now that I can use in it as an example for the future because other rescues do the exact same thing. So this isn't about witch hunting one specific place so much as examining the attitude that enables the level of, I guess, like, suffering that they're allowing to continue because they're hoping that it'll result in the horse being saved. And this is something that I think every animal owner needs to consider at some point. If you haven't had to yet, you're very lucky. But weighing out quality of life and whether or not it is ethical to continue keeping your animal alive is something that every animal owner is probably going to have to go to go through unless you're just really fortunate to have animals just die peacefully before they tank. Um, but it's the reality of taking on animals. And the thing that I think that people really need to realize about animals versus people, because when I commented on this on TikTok, I had a lot of people being like, oh, are you saying like all disabled humans should just get euthanized? And I'm like, no, that is literally eugenics. And also like comparing people to animals at best is anthropomorphic, but at worst it's dehumanizing to the humans and it fails to actually acknowledge the point being made about the animals um the key difference between horses and humans in particular would be the anatomical differences like without even going into the differences in cognition the sheer anatomical difference between a horse and a human is enough where you can't compare the accommodations that we're able to give to disabled humans to what we give to disabled horses because horses from like the knee and the hawk down, they have no muscle. It's all connected by like soft tissue structures and bone. And then from their shoulder down, they have no collarbone. So their shoulder and the rest of their leg muscles are connected to their skeleton by soft tissues. This poses a really unique difference anatomically. Also, when you couple it with the fact that horses are the only animal in the world that walks around on a single digit. Basically, the horse leg and the hoof is the equivalent to wa us walking around on our middle finger. One finger 
and just throwing a hoof on there. The hoof does a lot of shock absorbing stuff and it's a really complex and amazing structure. So when horses are not able to walk on all four hooves or use all four legs, this poses a lot of problems to their body structure. For example, a lot of horses who break legs severely and go on to the rest and rehab for that end up dying of laminitis at another point because the additional pressure that all of their other hooves have to take to make up for the one non-weight-bearing leg messes up their body. You also see issues like colic because the horses are in pain, they're not able to move around normally, and it causes digestive issues. And there's really no shortage of post-op issues when it comes to severe leg issues. This is not me saying that every single leg issue or every single minor fracture is completely unfixable. There are situations where the rehab and surgery required um, and the resulting rest period and the resulting discomfort from that might be worth the prognosis of what is to come afterwards. But that is the key difference that I think owners need to consider is what is the prognosis because putting an animal through weeks of treatment and surgery and then also weeks and months of recovery when there's a very slim chance that what's happening will actually bring them to full mobility or actually able to enjoy enjoy their life in the way that they need to even just as a pasture pet if those odds are really low in my opinion it is not ethical to continue going through treatment and putting the horse through that because unlike with a human in the same situation who can be told, hey, this is what happened to you, this is the treatment protocol, this is the plan, this is the timeline, this is what you can expect afterwards, the horse has no idea of that. All they can do is exist within the present of what is going on and they don't know what the outcome will be. They don't know that they're actually fighting for something to get better. To them, all they can do is exist in the present. So if the present is highly painful and really, really crappy, they have no concept of like, oh, if I just get through this part, I might be okay after. Um, And that's a big might when we're talking about these types of injuries. Like I encourage people to go to my TikTok and look at some of the videos I've done on this horse so you can see the degree of the congenital deformity that we are talking about because it's both hind legs not being properly formed at all. um, And it's trying to be surgically fixed. And it's something that is like, a more uncommon thing for people to actually pursue the surgery of because of how poor the healing is and what the prognosis would be in addition to all the expense. So it's not something that you'll see done very often, um, but for most horse people who've been around horses for long enough, you can look at a situation like that and go, this is not a good situation for the horse. Um, Since the rescue seems to kind of specialize in all types of small animals and as like a sanctuary I really believe that they are not well versed with horses and that they don't have a concept of like how bad the prognosis for something like this is and that they're being way more hopeful because even if a vet tells you that it's a bad prognosis if you've not been around horses to see the number of horses that pass away from leg injuries because they need to be euthanized you don't have the same concept of what it is actually like. So I get the feeling that the people don't know, and I don't think that they're doing this out of malicious intent. But what I do think is that with animals like this, there is a huge pressure to use them for views because when you're doing these type of like quote unquote feel good stories with animals who are coming from rescue situations, the worse the situation is and the more you can like milk that for views, the more donations roll in, the more attention you get, and they're just typically the animals that bring in the most revenue and 
um, publicity for the rescues. And honestly, like, this is not me judging all rescues that do that because for some of them, it could be a good thing. Like, going to an auction or going and rescuing a very emaciated horse and bringing it back to life typically generates a lot of attention because the transformation is so severe. Um, but that is a lot more viable to do than what they're doing in this case. Both kind of serve the same purpose, though. If you're a rescue and you get one of the more high-profile, super sick um, rescue horses where there's going to be some dramatic transformation to bring them back to life, that will generate a lot of views and a lot of attention, and people will want to come flock to your page to watch what's going on with the horse. And that's what ha is happening in this case, where they get a lot of non-horse people flocking to their page to watch them save the youngster and bring him back to life. And they are going there in hopes of this being rectified and resolved and actually getting to watch the horse be happy again. But most of these people supporting this are not horse people, so they're missing the more subtle signs of discomfort, like the whale eye, the tense lips, the tight jaw, um, the tail swishing, the inability to move around to the degree the horse should. And they also miss the little things like the fact that the horse cannot live with other horses right now, that he's completely isolated. So what they're viewing as a feel-good story is from within the parameters or their lack of knowledge of horses, and th that is why it's so easy for these types of people to support these things. So it's kind of it's kind of a difficult problem because if you get enough people who lack the experience to be like self-aware in these situations supporting the sanctuaries, it also promotes the idea that they're doing the right thing. Um, and people like me are labeled as like trolls and the big bad guys for criticizing it because it's viewed as coming from malicious intent and just with the purpose of starting drama when really it's the exact opposite because the problem is like this one rescue, sure, it's one rescue, it's one horse, prolonging his suffering only hurts him in this immediate situation. But putting it online all over TikTok and getting hundreds of thousands of views on some of the videos normalizes to the everyday person that this is not only viable, that it's a normal type of treatment to do for horses, and it's more ethical to do for them. So for people who want to start their own sanctuaries eventually or do their own rescue that aren't like real rescue facilities and are not horse people, this poses a big threat to equine health because if they think that stuff like this is just... They can either funnel their money into supporting other rescues who do this, or if they choose to try to go the rescue route themselves, they could make a bad decision where they want to save some high-profile case like this in hopes of making a big difference and getting to show the big transformation online, but then get an animal that is like not viable to save. So I don't really like seeing this stuff get sensationalized and blown up all over online because I don't think it's ethical, and I think that it teaches people the wrong thing because it's teaching them that these types of treatments are a lot more viable than they actually are, that it's more ethical to the horse than they actually are. And it's also promoting the idea that the act of keeping an animal alive is more just than euthanizing it. And again, this is not specific to this rescue because a lot of people believe this and they'll attack like kill shelters and stuff. Uh, for euthanizing animals that they view as healthy and savable. And like, even in the cases where the animals are healthy and savable, if they're not being adopted and the other alternative is the animal staying in the shelter for like years on end and taking up space or other animals not being able to sa be saved, euthanasia for an animal is like peaceful, it's quick, it's painless. And even if it's sad to be euthanizing animals who in theory could go to homes, if those homes aren't stepping up and there are so many unwanted animals that the animals just keep pouring in, 
I personally don't think euthanasia is a bad thing, but especially in medical circumstances where the animal is suffering, I think that, oops, I think that euthanasia can be doing them a service. Like you're, you're doing something kind to them to help them out and make their life not agony anymore. And it's a really difficult decision to make. I discussed this on a YouTube video where I brought up like my decision with George and choosing to go through with the EPM treatment where he actually had like a good prognosis to come back to at least be pasture sound and happy in the pasture. Um, but it didn't go that way and he tanked. And by the time I did euthanize him, it was unfortunately when he like went down and couldn't get back up. And if I'd called it a little sooner, it wouldn't have been a situation like that. But in a situation like that, what I would say is being like, since he was only four years old and he had a good prognosis, it wasn't a situation where I was carrying out treatment, knowing that there was a very good chance that the horse wouldn't survive and knowing that it, he was actively going to be suffering and in high levels of pain leading up to that. That wasn't his type of situation, but in situations like this, that's what it is. Um, and like... I understand where people are coming from because as humans, like, we fear death a lot and we want to stay alive and we want to protect animals and, like, save them. But sometimes, like, the best thing you can do to protect them is letting them go because it's not protecting them to just make them suffer for longer. And it's one of those things where when you try all these things to save the animal and then nothing happens and the animal ends up dying anyways or eventually needing to be euthanized because there's truly no other options to try to prolong life then you end up feeling a lot worse because it makes it clear like what the ending would have been regardless. But now you've prolonged it for however many days or weeks and watched the animal suffer and lose their life because of it. Um, and like with this mini, like I think what people need to consider, and this, this goes with any horse, if your horse has to be taken away from other horses and actively live alone with no other horse contact, especially when they're coming from being weaned from their mom to be rescued, Basically, their entire life has been one of disruption and stress. And when we're talking about a congenital issue that they're born with, it's an issue that they've been having to deal with and try to manage since birth. And then when you're adding all of these additional stressors of being taken from their mom and being left alone, going to and from the vet, in addition to that pain and that discomfort and that inability to move their body around... That's enough things stacking on top of each other to impact quality of life that I do think it's a valid concern to go, okay, this might be time to call this quits and kind of end this situation. Um, and that is part of being like a moral human being is making decisions for the best of your animals because they can't make it for themselves. And a lot of people will go, well, like in the wild, they would just keep surviving. And it's like, yes, that's because they have to. But in the wild, animals who have their movement significantly disrupted, especially flight animals, they would be picked apart by predators pretty early on so that they would not be having to suffer and live for as long as they can in human care where they're being protected from natural predators that would relieve them of their pain sooner. And I'm not saying that predators would kill them in as kind of a way as people can. It would be a lot more gross and not as quick, but they would remove them from that prolonged period of suffering where they're essentially just waiting to die because they cannot function properly. Humans can keep animals alive for a lot longer in situations that the animal would have already died if there wasn't human intervention. And that's something that we need to consider when we're taking care of them. And it's not about, like, 
I don't know. It's not about, like, wanting to kill animals because, like, obviously my preference would be to, like, help them live a happy and full life. But if that quality of life is not there or there's no homes to step up to give it to them, I'm very pro-euthanasia because, like, as someone who works pretty closely with vets and has had lots of animals and who's been, like, a trainer. So, like, I have to be involved with a lot of clients' vet care as well. And I've had to be involved in decisions for horses that are not mine. And I've had to be there to watch them die. Um, and be euthanized in situations where the owner made the call early enough or in situations where it's like an emergency situation the horse has gotten sick so quickly and they're in a period of like insanely high stress levels um, actively suffering until the vet gets there to euthanize them like I've been a part of a lot of these situations and they're really difficult to deal with but like it's also given me a pretty good perspective I think because like I've also and I've also spoken to vets like I encourage anyone, like, especially people who are on the fence or vehemently disagree with me, go to your local vets and go talk to a few vets about, like, what the worst part of working their jobs is. Because a lot of people are of the mind that, like, euthanizing animals is the worst part of being a vet. But honestly, that's probably one of the more peaceful things from what I have gathered from talking to them and also witnessing it. I think personally that the worst part of being a vet would be watching owners continue suffering um, and choose not to take the treatment of euthanasia when their animal is dying and needs it or when they bring their animals in way too late and there's no way of saving them and the animal is not salvageable and they're actively in pain and the vet has to take the animal in knowing that for however many days or weeks or months the animal has been actively suffering and now they're dying and in a horrendously painful condition that cannot be saved. I think those are the worst parts of vet med is owners not actually doing their job as an owner to properly advocate for their animal and the animal suffering as a result in one way or another. Not the euthanasia because euthanasia is controllable and it's like a practice where you can like heavily sedate the animal first so that basically they're already sleeping and they don't really know what's going on by the time the lethal injection is given. So it's basically like just putting them in a permanent sleep and they don't really know what's happening at that stage. So I would imagine that the vast majority of vets don't really see an issue with that because it's the lesser of the evils when it comes to like treating illnesses um, or like severe body deformities or injuries or animals that are just not savable or even in cases where the animal could be saved if the owner can't afford it or if the there's no owners stepping up like in shelter situations it's an unfortunate thing to let go of an animal that would be able to live a viable life but if their means of them living that life are not being offered to them i still think that euthanasia is the kinder option than letting them live like half a life in like a kennel in a shelter um in hopes that they might get adopted especially if they're like a very difficult to adopt animal like an animal with a behavioral problem for example and this also goes for behavioral euthanasias in the case of horses i will say that i think the vast majority of euthanasias that occur due to behavioral issues are euthanasias occurring because they either haven't identified the cause of pain that is causing the behavioral issue or the behavioral issues are fixable and they're a direct result of harsh training and punishing high pressure training methods and the owner not adapting to do behavioral modification that actually works. I don't think usually there's a lot of cases with horses in specific where they need to be euthanized because the behavior itself cannot be fixed. 
I think that mostly that comes down to what people are willing to put into them. But with that said, I would rather see a horse be behaviorally euthanized than passed around from trainer to trainer going through people who are just going to be meaner and meaner to it and push it around more and add more stress and not properly address any soundness issues or whatever the contributors are to the dangerous behaviors and just continue flooding the horse and pressuring it more. Um, the horse being alive and being put through that, I don't think being alive in those situations is doing them a kindness. So if they cannot find the right type of behavior professional to help them through said behavioral issues, I do think that it's doing them a kindness to euthanize them in those situations, even if in theory someone else would be able to fix the behavior. Um, and I just say that because like, I see a lot of people laboring, labeling dangerous behaviors in horses as unfixable when really they're only unfixable because the training program hasn't adapted at all to allow the horse to be fixed. So I have a bone to pick with stuff like that. And I think it's needed to just straight up say that most behavioral issues in horses are caused by and prolonged by people and their lack of ability to actually look at what's causing the behaviors and do a systematic approach to behavior modification. I don't think there's a high instance of horses who actually have non-fixable issues. Um, but with that said, I'm sure that there are some that are just not going to be fixed because they have like some type of brain, oh my god, I'm sorry, some type of brain issue or something going on internally that is just not necessarily going to be caught and fixed. So there, there, there's a number of issues that can be like the result of like long-standing behavioral issues, but I think that a lot of them are caused by people. Um, however, even with that, like if the, if there's no one around that is actually qualified to really help the animal through that problem, I see no issue with euthanizing them. Um, and I wish that the attitude towards euthanasia would change because unfortunately it often directs vitriol at rescue facilities who do euthanize at the right time because people think that they're just like letting them go too soon or that they've done something too soon on purpose with like the intent of just getting rid of an animal um, and not taking care of them properly. And that type of attitude needs to go because it's so misplaced and it's rooted in the idea that being alive is always inherently better when that simply is not true. When we're talking about an abundance of issues with animals, like there's so many issues that are not fair to ask them to live through and that people only are willing to do because they want the animal around for their reasons. So it becomes a selfish reason where the animal is only staying alive because the person cannot handle letting go and a lot of people project that feeling that they have to their own animals and that they hold themselves onto rescue facilities and owners and other people who make the right call and do euthanize and don't prolong suffering um, because they view it as inherently more righteous and moral to just keep an animal alive regardless of what that life looks like. So I think that talking about euthanasia more openly is really important and also normalizing the idea that like Keeping your animal alive is only doing them a kindness if their quality of life is such that they can enjoy their life. If they're living in pain and they can't enjoy doing everyday, day-to-day -day things that their species should be able to enjoy, then there's no reason to keep them alive, alive especially if there's no end in sight. It's one thing to like have their life, um, their welfare and ability to do things degrade for a short period of time when they're rehabbing something with a really good prognosis, like such as the case with stall rest, for example. Stall rest is going to impact welfare because they're being confined and generally kept away from other horses for extended periods of time. It's not an enjoyable circumstance to be in and it definitely impacts quality of life. 
But if your horse is going on stall rest for like eight weeks, 12 weeks, or even like if it's a lengthier stall rest, but they have like a chance, if they're young and they have a very good chance of coming out of it and having it be a good full life for them, then that would be where you could go, okay, this is worth it because I can get them all types of different enrichment to offset the stall rest. We can put them on pain pills. We can put a horse beside them so that they can interact while they're in the stall. We can make them like an outdoor medical paddock so that they can enjoy being outside around their friends and so on and so forth. Like there's steps you can take to make it easier for them. And when you can do stuff like that and the prognosis is good that it makes it worthwhile to go through the rehab, then it makes sense because you're going, hey, this animal has a good chance. I'm going to give them that chance. And there's some compromises we have to make in terms of like what we provide for the animal during rehab because what the injury needs to heal and what like the horse needs innately as a species don't always align because obviously like not moving around a lot is not good for horses but it's the lesser of two evils if you're looking at a fixable issue that just needs rest and has good prognosis and um like the potential detriment being like stall like colic and like issues induced by lack of movement there's things that you can try to put into place to make those risk factors less so in my opinion with situations like that it makes sense because you're weighing out like how ongoing the suffering is how long term the rehab is and what the overall prognosis is but if the overall prognosis is bad the rehab is long term and strenuous and the animal is in active pain that their pain medication is not effectively managing and even if it is if the prognosis is bad and the animal has to be isolated and alone and unable to move around for months at a time and still has no certainty regarding like how use of its legs will be following that then that's where it's like you're basically keeping this animal around on like the 1% chance that this will work. And that's a situation where it's like the animal doesn't get to consent to having that type of gamble taken on it. And when we're talking about chronic pain and high levels of pain and suffering, I don't think that the consent should be on the side where you're like, oh, well, they can't consent to being euthanized, so I'm going to defer to keeping them alive and suffering, even though I know animals only live in this in the present, so that their present is literally just hell. I'm going to defer to keeping them alive because that lack of consent means that they also can't consent to euthanasia. Um, but the lack of consent means that they're not consenting to you prolonging their suffering and making their life suck for however many days more it is until they succumb to their injuries. Uh, so it goes both ways because euthanasia from like a consenting standpoint is a lot less scary and painful than a lot of the conditions that people ask their animals to live through long term. So we're going to go into the whole consent thing too in terms of training but from like a life and death standpoint, yes, animals cannot verbally consent to their death, but they also cannot verbally consent to the life that they live. So if their life is agony, what you're doing is you're deciding between being the person to decide, I'm going to make my animal live for days on end in chronic agony where they are not enjoying their life and they are in pain and they're struggling. Or I'm going to give my animal a peaceful death where they basically fall asleep and don't wake up. And I'm going to be there for them during this time so that they're not scared and they go out with people they love. 
neither one of the two situations the animal consents to, but from a quality of life perspective and just actively monitoring the animal and how they feel about things based off of behavioral cues that are studied well and reliable. If the animal is suffering and in chronic pain, it's very easy to see which of the two situations is worse for the animal in terms of how they experience. The animal dying and us having to be there for them during that and then also have to deal with the loss of the animal is a situation that is more difficult for us because some people have an easier time watching their animal waddle around in pain than they do saying goodbye to it. Personally, for me, I think that the act of having to see an animal just in so much pain and know that there's no good solution and that the prognosis is poor, I think that would be more painful for me than letting go now that I've already done it. But for lots of people, it isn't. Um, but it's important as an animal owner to recognize when you're making a decision for yourself and when you're actually making one for the animal that you have. And being able to recognize that and be honest with yourself makes you a better animal owner and advocate. So now consent. Consent in training is something that is like non-existent in most schools of training, I'm going to be honest. Um, it's something that with horses, we're starting to think of more and more recently, but it's not something that really comes naturally to horse people to consider the idea of like allowing their horse to consent to things. And the, the normalization of this lack of consent is seen in a lot of areas in the horse world. Like I talked about this a bit on my Twitter the other day um, about like with mares that I believe a lot of trainers' hatred of mares is, first of all, rooted in internalized misogyny, but also I think it is actually their hatred of having consent demanded of them. Um, because mares are much more likely to say no to things that they don't like. Like, be it kicking or biting or giving you a warning or whatever, if you touch them somewhere they don't like or just refusing to do something, mares are much more likely than geldings, in my opinion, to exercise their right to consent and just say no to things. And people view that as difficulty. They view it as marishness. They view it as moodiness. They view it as a hormonal thing. But it's a trait that is very well ingrained in mares. Like in a natural setting, when we're looking at like a herd of horses and we have mares who are in estrus and are breeding, mares get to control when they are bred. If a stallion tries to breed them when they are not ready, they will quite literally beat the shit out of that stallion until he stops. They usually run the show with when they are allowed to be bred and which stallions are allowed to do it. So with that in mind, like the, the their ability to require that form of consent in a herd setting and having that be a fairly ingrained behavior in them. Um, and it's also the reason why like horses who grow up in healthy, large herds in like natural settings like this, the stallions are typically a lot better behaved and they don't act like the modernized, like isolated stallion who's kept away from other horses and literally cannot handle seeing another horse without losing his shit. Stallions who've had to grow up around mares and learn how to be respectful to the mare. And obviously horses don't have a concept of respect, but I mean like respect within their social norms. The stallion learns that, hey, when I come on too strong and I get all up in her space, I get walloped and this doesn't work for me and I don't get the attention I want and I don't get to have sex. They learn pretty quickly what they need to do in order to get what they want. And this teaches them how to be a better and more polite stallion as a result. Um, and this is also what makes breeding dangerous in like the, hu like in the human 
structured setting like when we're setting up all the breeding and we're selecting breeding pairs and potentially setting mares up to be bred when they're not ready this is what makes live cover so dangerous and so stressful because if the mare is not consenting she can severely injure or kill the stallion if she's not in breeding hobbles but if she's in breeding hobbles and forced to be there then she's not consenting um so this is why for like breeding i personally think that live cover is too stressful in most cases like in a perfect scenario where you could structure your property in the way to have like the most naturally occurring herd ever and like have your stallion live out and have it be done safely then i would say live cover is a lot safer but in a modern setting with like the what most people are doing now and how most horses live and how most stallions are living i would say that like ai is the kindest way to do it because then the mare can be like sedated and it's just easier they don't have to deal with some buffoon of a stallion who has never had to learn about consent and doesn't care um so but anyways that aside like the reason why i think a lot of people don't like mares is because of their willingness to demand consent you don't see the same level of demand from geldings on average because also like when you consider it like a gelding wouldn't naturally occur in like a wild herd like it's not it's not a natural structured part of the herd um when you're looking at like how horses would naturally function and live geldings are a lot more mellow and honestly they're typically a lot easier to bully now some geldings are not like milo for example good luck bullying him into doing anything but, like, the way he responds to things and how quickly he says no and the way he goes about saying no, even around other horses, his traits are a lot more consistent with what mares do. Um, even, like, the warnings he chooses to use and, like, just how he exists in a herd. Like, um, even with, like, how he plays, for example. Like, he defers to grooming more often than playtime in a lot of situations. And he also warns with kicks more than bites in a lot of situations, both of which are more consistent with what mares do. Um, so who knows what's going on with him or why he does that. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he was, like, intersex, in all honesty. Like, I really wouldn't, but we would only know if we, like, cut him open, which hopefully will not happen anytime soon because that is what happens in a necropsy. And I know that is very morbid, but, like, these are things that I think about now that I get into, like, science stuff. That aside, um... Mares are just much more likely to demand that form of consent. And it's even, like, little things. Like, grooming a mare, for example. If you groom a gelding and you hit a spot that they don't like, they might pin their ears, they might reach around to try to bite you, but, like, a mare might threaten to kick you. She might squeal. She, she'll pin her ears a lot more noticeably and stake her head. She's more likely to say, no, I really don't like that. Stop immediately. Um, and I think these traits are why people don't like mares as much. And they'll make up different excuses about mares being more difficult. But, like, I personally don't view it as the issue as them actually being more difficult. They're only more difficult if you're the type of person who doesn't understand consent. Um, and I used to not really be a big mare person because, like, the people that I grew up learning and training with, they didn't like mares. Um, they fed to me all of these stereotypes about mares and like the mares that they did have, they at most like tolerated, but they didn't really like mares. They, there was a lot of stereotyping about said mares and just about how difficult they could be and, um, not necessarily appreciating them for what they were. So I had a preference for geldings that was kind of created by that. And then I also like found geldings mostly when I was like horse shopping so, um, I mostly worked with geldings and not mares, but then when I got into, like, galloping, I, uh, I 
started to ride way more mares and it was really telling because then I started to notice like clear personality differences between mares and geldings and I realized that I really liked mares because mares were really dependable they typically matured faster than the geldings did of the same ages and if you weren't mean to them and if you were nice to them and even if it's not fully consensual in all the ways because obviously like with the racing industry and like predominantly pressure and release training like if the horse starts to say no, you kind of just ask again in a different way. But, like, when you're not punishing them and forcing them and sending them to high levels of stress and you use non-escalating negative reinforcement instead, they're much more likely to say yes. They start saying hard no's when you're mean to them. And I think that this is why a lot of people run into problems with mares and why they don't like them because they don't want to even consider for a second, like, pausing what they're doing slowing down what they're doing, asking in a different way. They view it as like a slight against them and their training program if the mare dare says no to them when they ask a bunch of other horses the same way and can force them to do it. And then when the mare continues to fight them and then they continue to escalate what they're doing as a result and get louder and louder and more forceful and the situation just continues to get worse, they instead blame the horse instead of recognizing the role that their training program played in doing that. Um, and the issue very rarely, like I said, like even with like behavioral euthanasias and stuff, the issue very rarely is the horse, is the horse. Horses like almost always choose the path of least resistance. They don't want to cause problems. They don't want to start fights. They try to do whatever is easiest and they are typically quite easy to bully as a species. Like even with, even with mares, mares are just a little less like less easy to bully than like the average gelding. But as a species, it's pretty easy to make a horse do what you want it to do. So the people who aren't used to getting a horse that'll tell them a hard no because they're used to being able to use harsh methods and just bully horses into being compelled to do things out of fear and stress, when they get the horse that that's not enough for and the horse still says, no, I really don't want to do this, fuck you, then they get, like, it's a blow to their ego and that blow to their ego is not one that they can accept without trying to blame it on something else. So they'll go, oh, this stupid fucking horse, this dumb bitch of a mare. Oh, she's just like a, she's just a rank bitch. Like, she's just like, like mares, am I right? Moody mares, chestnut mares. Like, they'll make up any length of excuses they can to separate their training method from the horse's reaction. And honestly, here's the thing. Regardless of your training program, even if you're a very good trainer who is well-versed in equine behavior, when you get a response that you don't want, it is reflective of your training program and what you've asked, even if what you're asking is not technically flawed. If the horse doesn't receive it well or if they respond poorly because they're in pain, they're in discomfort, they've had other triggers stacked throughout the day, whatever the reason, it's still reflective of your training program and your methods because if you're like a good trainer adapts. So when the horse starts to not be receiving something well, you go, okay, things are starting to escalate here and get stressful. What can I do to de-escalate the situation? Because I know that animals in high levels of stress do not learn well. A lot of trainers choose to continue escalating the situation. And then when the horse continues to act more stressed and engage in more stress behaviors, they blame the horse. But here's the thing. We know horses in high levels of stress don't retain information as well. We know they're more likely to engage in dangerous flight behaviors and pose a risk to us. We know that adding stress in these situations does not help the situation. 
So trainers who choose to continue adding pressure and stress in already stressful situations that their horse is struggling to deal with are making a choice that is basically doomed to fail. It has a very low instance of success, but they're choosing to do it anyways because they are too proud to reevaluate how they do things. And that is the problem here. And then, like with the mares or any horse who doesn't want to consent, they inevitably get blamed and labeled as a difficult horse simply because they don't succumb to unfair training methods. And like I said this in other podcasts, but like a horse that is not willing to be pushed around and bullied and treated like shit is actually a smarter horse. They're, they're recognizing that it's not fair and they're trying to say no and like assert themselves um, and not be bossed around because they don't want to be pu- pushed and forced into doing things and made inherently uncomfortable by people just poking and prodding them and like forcing them into doing things. So it's not really like it's an in, it's a it's an example of a higher degree of intelligence. So think about how many cool, really talented and amazing horses these types of trainers could have if they put their ego aside and went how can I ask this horse in a way that they'll understand better and be more willing to do instead of going, this horse is defying me. I need to show it who's boss because it is disrespecting me. Like the sheer choice as a person to take an animal's unwillingness to do what you ask when you're forcing them to do something as a slight against you and an indicator that they're disrespecting you is just totally the human's choice. Like it's your choice to read some read into something way further than what it actually is and label an animal as having thought processes that they're incapable of. Like, that's your choice as a human, and people who choose to do that are choosing to get more upset because they've chosen to misread and misrepresent a situation despite the overwhelming amount of information showing them why it is not that way. And... Then, when they get their emotions high and they're getting, like, offended by how the horse is behaving, they choose to react to and treat the horse a certain way and escalate the situation even more because they're choosing to take out their lack of emotional control on the horse. And that is all a choice on the person's part. The person consented to all of that, including the behaviors that they incite in the horse by causing higher levels of stress. The person consented to working with the horse. The person consented to being a horse trainer. The, cr- the person consented to continuing to escalate things even as the horse's behavior tells them that it's a bad idea to make this more stressful. The horse consented to none of that. So in those situations, the fault always lies with the person. And every time I hear someone say something about hating mares or hating rank horses and needing to show horses who's, who's boss, it's a huge red flag. It tells me right away that this person cannot accept consent for what it is, that they can't take no for an answer, and that if an animal doesn't immediately respond how they want it to, they're going to get upset and take out that anger on the animal even though it is their fault for how they've handled the situation. And it doesn't bode well as, like, a horse trainer, these traits, but also as, like, a regular human being. Like, when I see these traits in regular human beings, it usually tells me that in other instances, they're going to struggle to accept consent. And now this doesn't necessarily need to be related. Like, I'm not talking about people necessarily sexually harassing people and taking it to that degree. But it can even be little things, like, with friends. Like, not allowing friends to consent to not wanting to hang out with you. Or not allowing friends to consent to, like 
actually doing, like, enjoying the same activities as you. Like, it can be areas of forcefulness and um, trying to coerce people into doing what you want in other areas. And it's something that I think a lot of horse people do and come by naturally because of how we're encouraged to handle horses this way. And it's something that all of us need to be conscious of and work on. Um, because we're taught to ignore consent in the vast majority of training programs when we start out with horses. And we're taught to read a lack of consent as disrespect to us, even though by getting that lack of consent and making it present and getting these hard no's to arise out of horses, we are actually the ones disrespecting the horse because we have the concept of disrespect. We know what respect is. We know what disrespect is. We can look up enough information about equine behavior and cognition to know what they can and cannot understand. We know what scares them. We know what causes high, higher degrees of stress. We know what situations they tend to learn best in. We know what situations they tend to learn worst in. And if we don't know, know these things, we have a very easy means of looking them up, fact-checking, and reading these things. The horse has none of that. So what we're actually doing when we expect horses to just blindly listen and do what we told them to do simply because we told them to is we're expecting the animal to allow us to blatantly disrespect them and their species-specific behaviors, how they learn, how they function, and just defer to us and our needs. So what we view as disrespect from horses is actually the result of us disrespecting them. It's not any indicator of how the horse does or doesn't respect us because they're not capable of that. All they are doing is reacting within the moment in the way that they know how. But a lot of the instances of what we view as disrespect in horses are, if not all of them, are caused by how we as humans react. Even just the choice to work with horses in general is something we consent to. So anything the horse does after that is still our fault because we chose to engage in that training program and we chose to work with horses. Horses don't choose any of that. And it's really loaded to me how this concept of respect is brought up so often in relation to how the horse behaves around people. But humans are never giving horses respect. We never give them the respect that our species is, is capable of as the more intelligent species with the more developed brain. We never give that to them, but then we expect this flight animal without the same social structure as us, without the same concept of respect or the ability to understand complex topics like that. We expect them to freely give us what we view as respectful behavior, even though they don't know our social ethogram and our repertoire as a species. We expect them to just innately know how to give that to us, even in high-stress situations, even when we push them too hard, even when we ignore all of their signs of stress and that they're not coping well with what's being asked or that they're confused. We expect them to freely give us what we view as respect, even though it's not something that comes naturally to them. Because knowing how to exist around humans and within the confines of our training programs and within what we ask of them is not an innate behavior in horses. It's not a naturally occurring behavior in horses. It's one that we expect of them. And when they don't give it to us quickly enough or right away, then they are punished for this and it's viewed as disrespectful or viewed as a bad horse, a rank horse. And it's not fair because the standard that we're holding our horses to, we never meet ourselves. Never. People never 
give the same respect to their horses that they demand back from their horses. They don't give the same understanding. Like, we expect horses to understand to stay out of our space, to not be pushy, to not engage in normal flight behaviors and normal behaviors for a horse when they're stressed. But on the flip side, we don't expect ourselves to not push our horses to that degree of stress so as to incite those behaviors. We don't expect ourselves to ask for a higher degree of consent to avoid those behaviors. We don't ask ourselves to question why a horse is behaving a certain way and ask if they're in pain or there's some other reason behind it. We don't expect any of that of ourselves. There's very little work being done on the part of the human to understand the ethogram of the horse and how the horse communicates and take that into account in training and not get so pissed off when their flight animal acts like a flight animal. So the sound of their horse is being held to in terms of trying to learn how humans function and think and what our expectations are, are so much higher than ours because we spend very little time looking at what the expectations are on the horse's part and how we should fulfill them. And honestly, the expectations on the horse's part are a whole lot lower because it's just like, please don't stress me out. Please make this mutually um, reinforcing for the both of us. It's not a very big ask. Like, horses are very social, friendly animals that don't want to cause problems. So, like, if you decide to be nice to them and listen to them and be more conscious of when they're getting stressed and cater to them a little bit more, they actually do realize that. I've noticed it in horses. Even when they're not necessarily being taught any specific thing, as soon as horses start to realize that I'm conscious enough that if they show me they don't like being touched in a certain area or if they show me that they're unsure that I pause for a second, I'm like, okay, what's up? Where do you like being scratched? What do you like to do? Oh, you need a, a, a little bit longer to sit here and assess the situation? Okay, great. Let's stand here and look. When they realize that I'll actually make the effort to communicate with them and try to understand where they're coming from, suddenly they relax a lot more and they're way more perceptive and communicative with me because they realize that their communication is actually going somewhere rather than just being ignored. And it doesn't take much to get that from them. It really doesn't. They really want to coexist peacefully with any creature and especially us because if they don't coexist peacefully with us, it often results in them getting the shit end of the stick and getting punished. But it's humans who cannot accept that consent. It's humans that cannot take no for an answer and that push horses harder and inflate situations far past the degree that they need to be because we get frustrated when a horse says no to us and we can't make them do something. And that's the thing is it is a huge weakness in training and in you as a trainer and a horse person if all you know how to do is compel an animal to do something by forcing them to do it. Because eventually you'll come across a horse that cannot be forced to do something, that would rather kill you or themselves than be made to do something they don't want to do. And if all of your methods are rooted in forcing an animal to do things and pressuring them to the point of them feeling obligated to do what you're asking, then you're screwed because you have no other tools in your bag to try to compel a horse to do something that they naturally will not want to do. Um, if they will not be forced to do it. So being able to adapt and learn how to make an animal want to do what you're asking is such a huge skill. And this is also why I don't understand why so many horse people are so anti-rewards-based training because, like, honestly, like, it's not about becoming a pure positive reinforcement trainer. It's about adding tools to your skill set as a trainer that will make you a better trainer. And undoubtedly, 
learning the science behind learning theory and positive reinforcement and which methods work the best across species will make you a better trainer, no questions asked. Full stop. It's just about how open-minded you will be as a trainer rather than what is actually successful. Because if you look at the research, it is overwhelmingly obvious what the most successful forms of training are and where we are going wrong in training horses and where we're causing issues and making things more dangerous and making horses more stressed and making training less pleasant for them. Being able to make an animal want to work for you and do what you're asking is a power move. I know that a lot of trainers feel powerful forcing animals and like chasing horses around until they're tired and making them work harder and making the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy and so on and so forth. That makes them feel powerful, but actually being able to compel an animal to do what you want them to do and have them do it because they want to do the thing, that is way more powerful. Because horses are not easy, they're, they're, sorry, they're not hard animals to bully. As far as animals go, they are one of the more easy animals to bully and force into doing what you're wanting them to do. Like, being the type of trainer that can just bully a horse into doing whatever you want and make them do it based off of increasing pressure more and more and more to the point where you might even be one of the trainers that is willing to forcibly lay a horse down if they're too unruly. Anyone can do that. It doesn't take much. All it takes is a lack of morals and a lack of empathy for the creature you're working with. That's it. You just need to not worry about them getting injured. You just need to not worry about their emotional well-being and you just need to just be like, okay, let's go. It doesn't take anything more than that. Being able to understand that there's an underlying motivation behind every behavior, even the unwanted ones, and be sensitive to that and be curious of what that motivation is and how you can capitalize off of that for training the behaviors that you want or how you can help fix that if it's resulting in behaviors you don't want to see. Suddenly, when you start to understand that, you can teach any animal how to do anything because it's a process that you can use to shape behaviors in any type of training program. And yes, different animals have different learning capacities, but once you understand learning theory and the science of behavior modification, you can literally take that and apply it to any animal, not just horses. So it is such a huge power move to learn that type of thing. And it also makes animals more willing to want to work with you and less difficult to work with in the first place. And it also, with horses, makes the stress behaviors dwindle and makes training safer and easier on both sides. So there's really no shortage of reasons why people should want to start to try these types of methods and why they should be more conscious of the idea of consent. And from where I stand, like, the idea of consent is not just, like, where you take it to the point where, like, especially with me working in the traditional training world, I can't always, like, if a horse doesn't want to go do something today, I can't always just go, okay, I'm going to put you back in your paddock because their trainer is paying me to work with them. I have to find different ways to compel them to do what I want them to do and to also help make it reinforcing and fun for them. If they're having a day where they're more stressed and less able to cope with things that they might be able to cope with more easily on other days, then we'll change up what we do and I'll have lower expectations of them because even if I want them to do the thing and I know they can do the thing, if they're not in the state of mind to make that an easy learning process and they're in a state of higher stress where they won't retain information as well, it's not putting me ahead to try to push them to do that when it's going to stress them out and just cause more problems. Adapting your training program 
on days to suit what the horse is most able to do on those days is perfectly warranted and fair. And honestly, if more people tried it, I think they'd find they'd actually get further ahead because they'd spend less time fighting with horses on days where things just are not going to work. So it's all about just adapting and being more open-minded and just considerate of the idea of consent because it's kind of like the same idea as like, like you're the guardian of the horses that you work with and it's kind of a similar idea to being like the guardian of a child. Like a parent being the guardian of a child, the kid's not always going to get their way and get what they want because some of the shit that they want to do is stupid and dangerous and will cause them harm and at that stage in life they are too dumb to realize that what they're doing and how it might endanger them or the people around them and so on and so forth. So they need the guidance of someone that is more understanding of those things to help them through difficult stages. Now, does this mean that parents should punish and force their kids to do things and be mean to them? No. But does it mean that the kid doesn't technically have full autonomy to do whatever they want because they are not an adult? And if they had full autonomy, they would probably be doing things like sticking a fork in, a, in an outlet or something. Um, so they're, they're within a structured program of having the autonomy to explore and do things in a safe way and also being encouraged to learn and do new things through rewards-based methods and mutually reinforcing methods for them and their guardian, but they're also being prevented from actively endangering themselves and engaging in behaviors that are not productive and are also harmful to them. So they don't necessarily have full autonomy, but they need to have enough autonomy to actually be a person and be able to make decisions for themselves and learn and grow within that environment. And the same applies to horses, because the other thing that we have to consider as humans is when we choose to not give horses any autonomy in any situation, um, even to the point of like their management practices where they're kept in really small pens and not allowed to go with other horses, they don't learn how to exist and function safely as a horse. Like horses who have never been allowed to go outside and actually have free exercise and be able to make decisions for themselves typically injure themselves more and do a lot dumber things because they literally do not know how to exist as a horse because they've never been allowed to do so. Um, and in training as well, like a horse who never has any autonomy and is never encouraged to offer the right answer is going to be harder to train. And they've actually done studies on this um, because they're punished for the wrong answers. They're less likely to offer up an abundance of different answers because if they get the wrong one, there's a good chance that they'll be punished. And even like with negative reinforcement as the sole method of training, like what that is at its core is the horse is being reinforced by the removal of an aversive stimulus, which means that it's just relief is the reinforcer for them. So they're not actually taught to like seek out to want to do something or engage in a specific behavior because they're seeking out a specific reward. They're taught how to do something to evade an unpleasant feeling. Um, so this means that they're not compelled to offer up a bunch of different behaviors and to try to get the right answer in the same way a horse in a rewards-based program is because they're being rewarded for the right answer. So why wouldn't they want to try to give you that right answer? There's something in it for them. There's a state, there, there's stakes in it for them, you know, like they got rewards at stake. Like, so now they're suddenly like, okay, I'm invested in this because I get something out of it too. Whereas in the other situations, it's just like, I just want to move away from this feeling that I don't really like. So 
it's different. And again, like, it's not about the idea of giving horses autonomy to such a point where, like, they just get to, like, a lot of people go, oh, well, like, you just give them a treat for being bad and let them walk all over you. No, when they're bad, I ignore the shit out of them. And since they love being around me, that is, like, a disaster for them and it's punishing in itself. And so that's how it's done. Like, yeah, my dog is joining in on this podcast, apparently, if you can hear her. Um, so that's how it's done. And, like, it's not about rewarding bad behaviors because also, like, we don't, even with pressure and release, you're not rewarding a bad behavior. Like, you're not reinforcing the bad behaviors. You're only reinforcing the behaviors you want to see. And the same applies with rewards-based training. If the animal engages in a bad behavior that's not what you want, you're not going to click and reward that and treat them for it because that's not the behavior that you want. You'll pause and you'll wait for them to make the right decision and then click and reward. And a lot of people still can't get past that because if the horse is being rewarded within like a minute of them doing something that they didn't want to do, they want to fixate on that bad behavior and just be mad about it. But that doesn't teach the horse anything. It's not getting anywhere in training. It's just you being salty and holding on to your emotions for way longer than necessary just so you have a reason to be mad. And a lot of horse people do that. There's no reason for it. So it's not about giving horses full autonomy to the point where like you can't do any, like, you're letting them walk all over you, rob your house, steal your car, and do whatever, and just be dangerous, because you're not reinforcing those behaviors. So when you give them more autonomy, they do what is most, most reinforcing still. And it's because it's what you've been reinforcing. For them, there's no benefit to running their owner over if that never gives them a reward. If walking beside their owner calmly is what they're reinforced for, that is what they're going to do because it is the most reinforcing behavior to engage in. So learning about like consent with horses is less about like letting them do whatever they want necessarily and more about trying to compel them to have a reason to want to do what you're asking and make it reinforcing and rewarding for them. And it's also about listening to them about where they're at on any particular day, taking note of when their stress levels become elevated and helping them work through that and listening to them rather than staying so focused on your goals and what you wanted to do with them that you're willing to put them in a, in a situation of high stress where they're less able to learn just so you can continue doing what you wanted to do, even if it's not going to be as successful and they're not going to learn as much from it. So that's really all it's about. And it all just comes down to like listening to your horse. And honestly, I think that this connects with what I was saying about euthanasia because part of that consent is listening to your animal. If your animal is telling you that they're in active pain and you know from talking to their vet that it's not something that looks like there's any end in sight, then you can take that, that, that telltale signs of pain and chronic discomfort and high levels of pain and suffering as your consent for them to live a more peaceful life and to be taken out of their suffering because they don't want to live in active pain, especially for flight animals. Being in active pain is being vulnerable to predators, which means they're also probably going to be in active levels of like high levels of anxiety because they know that they're basically a sitting duck for a predator. So I think it all plays a role and it's not like you can't, obviously a horse can't verbally consent to you and be like, yes, totally. I agree with this. But, like, what we learn of their behavior and what they're telling us, we can kind of learn what they would want. And this, the same goes for when they're telling us they're in pain. If their pain is unfixable and they're telling you that they can barely function with it, that's your consent right there, in my opinion. Um, and with training, 
I think it's just important to like look at yourself as a trainer. If you freak out when a horse tells you no for something, that says everything about you as a trainer and nothing about them as a horse because you need more emotional control. You should be able to take no for an answer and think of a more clever way to try to get that yes instead of just getting mad and getting louder and trying to make the wrong decision hard and the right one easy. The easiest way to make the right decision easy is by rewarding for that right decision. So making the wrong decision hard and the right one easy is actually just making your job harder and just like laying into your frustration and anger and getting louder and louder and louder and then never actually telling the horse what the right answer is other than like being less loud after. Making it easy for the horse is making it reinforcing and rewarding for them to do it and the reinforcer should not just be the relief of pressure. Um, I think that adding in rewards-based training and actually showing the horse what the right answer is and working with them and monitoring stress signs is the most successful method of training. Um, and this is held up in study as well. And it's not about being a purely positive reinforcement person. That's not what I'm saying at all. I still use pressure and release, but I've changed it to a non-escalating pressure and release approach. And rather than doing stuff like solely with pressure and release like I used to, I start to use things like the target stick to compel movement um, and help reward horses for the cues that I'm teaching to make it easier and less stressful for them. And as a result, they learn faster and it's lower stress and it's less dangerous for me and more fun for the horse. And they actually enjoy their work. So it's like a win-win on all sides. Um, but anyways, that's kind of my, my rant or my whatever for the day on consent and euthanasia. Um, and I hope that that gave people some thoughts on, how to kind of navigate that type of thought process because I know both of those things are pretty controversial topics so I'm sure lots of people don't necessarily agree with what I said and that's fine um but when we're talking about like animal pain it's pretty easy to measure quality of life off of like what your animal is telling you and like the overall prognosis and just their like level of pain and how they're able to cope with it and I would say that the vast majority of vets are also very good at helping owners decide that but they're often not listened to when they say what the most likely situation is and what should actually be done. So I would just just try to consider the fact that keeping an animal alive for longer isn't necessarily doing them a kindness and also be mindful of the fact that if you as a trainer cannot take no for an answer, it is a weakness as a trainer that you should work on and be mindful of adapting because I very much used to not be able to take no for an answer. This is not a judgment on people who can't. It's just a discussion on something that I am comfortable with because I used to do the same thing and now I'm on the other side and I can see things more clearly so I wanted to explain it to people. It's not judgment, it's just examining the horse world for what it is and most horse people cannot take no for an answer from their horses they freak out they can't handle it they take it as a personal slight and they throw tantrums and then they call their horse as throwing they say their horse is throwing tantrums when the horse reacts to their high level of energy and frustration all being funneled into the horse's training and trying to like make the horse do something um and then when the horse freaks out and behaves like a flight animal who is trapped, then suddenly they are the ones having a tantrum, not the intelligent bipedal creature that is chasing them down and yelling and shouting and screaming, of course. All of that is just about letting the person off the hook for having shitty emotional control, and I'm so over that. <laughs> so, yeah, really consider how you react to things in training and explore why if you find yourself getting really frustrated. That's all I can say, because I could not temper my frustration and, like, 
start to calm down until I actually started to look at it honestly and self-reflect as to why it was happening and what the role that I played in it. And it took me a while to get there, but now that I have, it seems so obvious. Um, so anyways, thank you for listening to this podcast. I always appreciate the support people give my podcasts. It's really awesome to see how many downloads they're getting and just how many people listen. Always appreciate it. Um, I'm also always open to like topic suggestions if anyone has particular topics that they would like to see done always open to hearing those um it helps give me uh inspiration to do them because that's really the only time I can record these is when I feel like I have something to talk about on the fly and then I can just go off because these are all unscripted um so yeah I appreciate that but anyways thank you again everyone don't forget to check out my other pages like my product line on amoreequestrian.ca on the milestone page you can check that out down below in the links of this podcast. Um, also my Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash S-D-E-Q-U-U-S. You can subscribe there for as little as a dollar a month to just support the podcast and all, all other um, like social medias that I have and just the general life of the horses and costs associated with that. It's a really nice way to just help support and also get free access to training, health, and whatnot. That's the best place to go if you want to, like, ask training questions and get help with that and also have access to behind-the-scenes tutorials on how to train all sorts of behaviors using positive reinforcement and other types of training methods. Um, I have several tutorials already up and I'm doing, like, desensitization series and other stuff as those videos get up. I'm moving right now, so the tutorial videos are slowing down a little bit for, like, this month. Um, but I have many, many on there that are existing from other areas. And there's also training tiers for people who want to do like training calls, um, and get like direct hands-on training help with their horses. So you can do that there. And then, yeah, like I said, with my product line on Amore Equestrian, um, I have a bunch of new base layer releases. Some are riding shirts, breeches, samples, bridles, neck ropes, bitless bridles, um, all sorts of stuff. The rose gold bridles have also released and they're out now. Um, and the Western bridles will be hitting the shop soon. So I recommend checking those out while quantities last once they're up. And yeah, again, I always appreciate the support of my business and my company and, um, every sale matters and every sale helps. So if you like something, please recommend it to your friends, share it, um, tag us in the posts of your product use. We, we love it and really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, the more stuff that sells, the more business expansion we can do for more product lines and the other one and otherwise. So highly recommend checking that out. You can go to amore equestrian.ca slash pages slash milestone, or you can click the link down below in the description and check that out. And also I do still have my merch store for like the graphic design tees and that's shopmilestoneequestrian.com and you can go and shop there for the graphic tees and that's also in the link down below in the podcast description. Thank you again for all of your support and um, for listening to these podcasts. I really appreciate it and I appreciate any and all support in like sharing my content so that other people can find it and just talking about it and I really yeah I appreciate all of it. So anyways everyone have a great day and I hope that this podcast was enjoyed.